Alright guys, welcome to another episode of the Millennial Momentum Podcast. This is your host, Tom Alamo. I'm at Tommy Tahoe on Instagram and Twitter. The purpose of this show is to help you millennials and myself fast track our personal development, grow in the skills that we want, help us get more money or uh, work up the corporate ladder or uh, get healthier, have better relationships, be more fulfilled, really just grow. And, and we want a bit 1% better every day. And I think the way to do that is through you know, having a great attitude, having a really strong work ethic, and a little momentum, which is forward motion with energy. So I'm hoping that this podcast can help you uh, to take that forward motion, to be a little momentum, uh, to get those cogs and those gears moving forward. So thank you for joining me. I have a really good interview today with Amy Morin. I'm going to get to her in a second. Just a few housekeeping items before we do. Again, this show is brought to you for free. I do all of the work. This is outside of my full-time job in sales. So I do this, you know, 4 to 7 a.m., uh, 7 to 10 p.m. and on the weekends. So uh, the only thing I really ask that you do is if you find any value here, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, uh, and just hit subscribe and leave a quick review, five stars. We have a $100 contest going out for everyone that does this in the month of September. Uh, check out all of the notes on millennialmomentum.net, and I'm Tommy Tahoe on social media. So enough of that. Let's get into the interview today. Um, a great quote from Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacles, The Way. He says, the obstacle in the path becomes the path. Never forget Within every obstacle is an opportunity to improve our condition. I think it's a really important quote as we kick this episode off. And you know, the first question I asked Amy was, you know, how much has your life changed in the last five years? Um, and a lot of people's lives change in five years. Uh, but Amy's completely transformed. If we take it back, you know, back in 2002, Amy began as a, uh, working as a psychotherapist you know, helping people handle stress, anxiety, depression, parenting issues. The next year, her mom died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. Three years later, to the day, her 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. A few years after that, her father-in-law lost his fight with cancer. And so in 2013, Amy was in a very vulnerable, a very tough place mentally. And at one of her low points, she decided to write herself a letter about the 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. She decided to publish it, share her story with the world, and from that moment, everything in her life changed. The article went viral. It gained 50 million views. It grabbed the attention from national headlines. Uh, she got put on a TED Talk, one of the most viewed TED Talks in history. Um, she's now an international bestseller of two books. Uh, that 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do became a book. Um, she's got a new book coming out later this year. She speaks all over the world and is now known as uh, a foremost authority related to mental strength. And the reason why I bring all that up is let's take it back to that quote with Ryan Holiday. The, the best part, all of this good stuff came from the obstacle that she faced. It came on the other side of adversity. And so I was so grateful to have Amy on the show to talk about her journey we talk about uh, relationships and mental strength and those. I get a little vulnerable on that. Um, and she talks about her upcoming book around um, 
mentally strong women and the things that they don't do. But, you know, Amy, again, you know, really, really impressive human being. So grateful to have her on the show. I mean, she has been dubbed the self-help guru of the moment. Uh, Forbes calls her the thought, uh, a thought leadership star. She's been on Time, Fast Company, Success, Business Insider, Oprah, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, Today. Um, she, you know, her books are in 30 different languages. So she is absolutely killing it. Uh, the utmost authority as it relates to mental strength, which I have a very fondness for this topic. Love talking to her. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Amy Morin. Enjoy. All right, Amy Morin, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on and have this conversation. I just finished up um, your book about 13 things mentally strong people don't do uh, a couple weeks ago. So this is timely, and, and I'm excited to, to pull back the curtains a little bit. I have some questions. Awesome. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about mental strength. Awesome. Maybe first things first, How much your life must be completely different now than it was in 2015 or 2014, huh? What a complete change. It is. So I was a therapist and uh, I was writing. It was writing was just basically my side hustle. My husband had passed away um, a few years before that and I needed some extra income. I couldn't, um, I could kind of pay the bills on my own, but it was going to be really tight. So I was looking for a, a side hustle and as a therapist, you can only really only work so many hours before you burn out. So I needed something different. And I found that writing was a great way to do that because I could write on the weekends or in the evenings and do it as little or as much as I wanted. And so I was just writing a little bit. And over time, writing became more lucrative to me. And so I was able to cut back on my hours as a therapist a little bit and do more writing. And then in 2013, I wrote an article called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And it went viral. It got 50 million views. And in the course of that being going around the internet, um, a literary agent called and said, you should write a book. And I said, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I can write a book. I'm not an author. I don't know anything about writing books. I just write articles as a side hustle. And fortunately, she called back a couple of weeks later and she said, no, really, you have to write a book. And I thought about it and I said, all right, if you think so, let's give it a shot. And uh, within a matter of a couple of months, we had a, um, a publishing deal with HarperCollins. And my next, my first book came out within uh, about a year after the article went viral. But one of the things was people kept thinking, wow, you wrote this article about mental strength. It must be because you've mastered all 13 of these things. And as the article went viral, I was getting phone calls from national news outlets from around the world saying, we want to talk to you about mental strength. And the article didn't say why I had written it. So people just assumed, oh, she's a therapist and this is what she, what she knows. But the truth was I had gone through a series of losses. So it started with um, my mom. My mom had passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And then my husband passed away on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mom died. My 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And a few years after that, I was fortunate. I got remarried and life was looking good. And then my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was just thinking, oh, this isn't fair. Why do I have to keep losing loved ones? Or when something good happens, then the other shoe drops and I'm going to lose somebody else. And... I just thought, you know, all right, thinking that way isn't helpful. If I've learned anything through all of my grief, it's that that way of thinking will keep you stuck and drain your mental strength. 
And so I wrote this letter to myself about all the things that mentally strong people don't do. And I would read it to myself over the course of a few days. And it was only then that I thought, well, if this is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. Never imagined it would go viral. Never imagined I'd then become an author. Um, and eventually I took a sabbatical from being a therapist because writing has uh, really taken off. And now I spend most of my time writing and speaking and um, talking to people about mental strength on a, on a global level rather than just in an office setting one-on-one. If that's a, your, I mean, your story is is incredible, and it blew me away when I first came across. Um, I think it was it was the TED talk that you gave. Um, but can you take me to the place where you're writing that letter to yourself? And like, obviously, you're in such a such a traumatic experience, and you're in such a vulnerable and grieving position. Like, what made you decide to instead of go get a drink or instead of go call someone or instead of go sleep or go for a run, you decide to sit down and write like, like here's what mentally strong people don't do. Like how did that come to your mind um, and put the pen to paper there? Well, you know, as a therapist over the years, I noticed that sometimes it wasn't about what people did. It was more about what they didn't do. And because I would really look at how come some people get better faster than others? How come some people bounce back? How come some people still have hope and they're still optimistic? They're still trying hard, even though they've been through horrible circumstances. And so it was something that I had learned um, through my work is that, you know, it only takes one or two bad habits to keep you stuck. And so then when I found myself in this place, you know, I had learned so much about myself and about mental strength when I had lost my mother and then when I lost my husband. And my father-in-law and I had grown really close. He'd become this sort of surrogate parent to me. And so the thought of losing him, and it was different because I lost my mother and my husband and uh, really suddenly, and we didn't know it was coming. And it was different with my father-in-law because I knew that we had maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks left with him. And I thought, you know, I don't want to just waste uh, whatever time he has left just sitting around and feeling sorry for myself because that's not helpful. And I can just remember sitting at the kitchen table, just thinking, you know, what do I do now? Well, I have some options, but um, let's figure this out. What can I do to say, how do I not waste the last uh, moments of his life just uh, in misery? How do I make the best of it? If this is the hand that I was dealt, I can't just wish it was different or I can't um, sit around and host a pity party and waste it. So I, I just sat down and I and I wrote, okay, here's what not to do in the next few weeks if you really want to stay as strong as possible. And as I've talked about strength, some people think, well, that means you shouldn't be sad or you shouldn't be upset. But that's not the case. I knew that it was okay to be sad and it was okay to be upset and it was okay to be angry and to have all of those feelings. But what wasn't helpful was hosting a pity party. That's why number one, the number one thing on my list is that they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves because I thought, you know let's say he has two months left and I just sat around and felt sorry for myself the whole time. Well, how's that going to feel in the, in the end of, well, boy, you know, you could have done all of these things or had all these special conversations with him, or you could have hosted a pity party. So I knew what I wanted to do. It was just a matter of saying, okay, don't do these certain things. And, um, and to help you get through this. And I think it was things that over time I had learned, I just had never written them down or never seen them all in the same place at once. But, I really drew upon what I learned as a therapist and what my own experiences with my other losses had taught me. And not only is it not weak to have those feelings, to be sad or to be angry, everyone has them, 
but it's also a sign of strength that you're willing to put that out. Like, you know, how many times have you, I mean, obviously you wrote the book and, and have talked about it on the Ted talk, which has 8 million views or however many, and you've probably told the story a million times, but to share that story of vulnerability so that other people like this type of stuff happens to other people too. And other people get sad for different reasons. And so I think it, it breaks down that wall when it's not just you as an author saying, here's through all these books I've read. Here's the 13 things I've discovered that mentally strong people don't do throughout history. It's no, I've, I've gone through some crazy stuff and here's, you know, from my personal experience, what I have, and here's my story. And I think that's such a more powerful way to talk about something like this when you actually go through such pain. Yeah. You know, when, um, after, after this literary agent had called me and said, you have to write a book, I didn't tell her the whole story. I just said, yeah, I'll think about it. But it was really the second or third conversation that I had with her. And I said, well, look, I have to tell you, there's a backstory and nobody knows it. I was on Fox News a couple of weeks after the book, after the article went viral on you know, MTV in Finland and CNN in Mexico. But I, I didn't tell anybody the story. I just said, yeah, I'm a therapist and I know these things. And it didn't really give them the backstory. I wasn't about to cry on national TV. And nobody knew my father-in-law actually had passed away just a couple of days before I was on national TV doing a whole bunch of interviews. But when I talked to my literary agent and I said, you know, there's a story, but I don't know if I want to tell it. I'm a therapist. I listen to people's stories, but I don't tell my own. And when when we talked to HarperCollins, uh, it was sort of something similar where I said, you know, there's a backstory, but I don't know if I want to share it. And everybody was so gracious. And they said, you know, you don't have to tell it if you don't want to, but it'll probably give you a lot more credibility if you do. And so I just decided, yeah, let's just go for it. Cause I didn't want people to think that it was just something I had learned from a book, but I wanted people to know, no, I really learned these things. And I guarantee that for me, they actually worked when I stopped doing these things. And I think one of the biggest things I've had to talk about as we talk about mental strength is, is that distinction between being mentally strong and just acting tough because so many people will say, well, you know, nothing ever bothers me or failure isn't an option or, uh, you know, I never get angry. I never get sad, but that's really just about having that fake wall of saying nothing bothers me. Well, being strong is about admitting no things bother me in life and uh, I have problems and I need help sometimes because it really takes courage and strength to, to acknowledge those things. So I thought by, by sharing my own story, part of it would be me demonstrating just that, that it's okay to say, Hey, I struggle too. Yeah. I think that's, that's an important message to put out. And as I was reading the book, uh, you know, the 13 things, I thought some some hit stronger than others, right? I think I'm, I'm better at certain things than mm-hmm. others. And we don't need to go through all 13. But one that stuck out to me was, was I think it's number nine. And it's not, uh, regret, not um, getting mad about other people's successes. And yes. you know, more specifically, I just went through a situation a couple of weeks ago. So I'm I'm in sales, as most of the listeners know, and I'm dating someone um, that's actually in sales at the same company as me. And you know, sales is obviously a very competitive industry, and you want to do well. And long story short, this year she's having an incredible year. She's killing it. She's way better numbers than I do. And um, you know, although I'm very proud of her, she's killing it, and you know, I'm very happy for her success. At the same point. There's that competitive, you know, me inside of me that's like, come on, man, like you can't get beat. Like, you don't, I don't want to get beat by anyone, let alone, you know, my girlfriend. Like, I want to be the best in the company, regardless of who it is. So I'm kind of been straddling that line where it's like, hey, great job, but 
fuck, I need to sell more. And like, I'm kind of getting in that, I was torn a little bit. And I actually didn't admit that to her or really to myself until about two weeks ago. Um, and it came out, but I'd, I'd love for, for you to maybe share any advice with me or anyone else that's going through something like that, where to look at it from more of an abundance perspective and say, hey, like her selling more or anyone else's success does not affect what I do actually at all. Um, I think that's hard to realize, but I'd love any tips you have on that. Yeah, I think that's so prevalent in today's world that it's it's tougher than ever because now, especially with social media, we see all of this stuff that people want to show us from their happy vacation photos to, you know, what their house, the inside of their house looks like. And it just becomes so easy to think that person's happier, they have a better life or that they're doing better than I am. And which then can lead to all sorts of thoughts about I'm not good enough or this isn't fair or I'll never succeed. And for some people, they become sort of bitter and resentful over time and it keeps them stuck. You know, for every 60 seconds you spend wishing you could be like somebody else, it's a minute that you didn't spend working on your own goal. And for people to know that just because somebody else is is doing better than you are, it doesn't mean that you're doing poorly. But we tend to compare ourselves and we measure our success based on what's going on around us or if you had a classroom full of people and somebody got a B on their test, they might feel really okay about a B, but then if they found out everyone else in the class got an A, that same B suddenly feels like a failure. But on the other hand, if everybody else in the class got an F and you got a B, you might be thinking, wow, I am amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, it's really about just figuring out, you know, what's your definition of success in life and knowing what that is and knowing that you're not in direct competition with the whole world, that they're running their own race. And just because somebody has a, has a, makes more money or they have a nicer car or they take more exotic vacations than you do doesn't mean that they are, are winning. It's just all about saying, well, what are my goals? What are my values? What am I doing here? And, and then what can I learn from other people? Rather than looking at people as your direct competition, look at them as somebody that you can learn from. And just making that shift in your brain of knowing that it's not that that person's better, it's that that person has different ideas or different uh, approaches to certain things. And I could learn from that person. Um, can prevent you from growing resentful and angry and, and bitter about thinking that that person's better than you are. Yeah, that's good advice. It's it's easier said than done for sure. But yes. I think just trying to have more of what I've been trying to do is have more of an abundance type of mindset where it's like there's not a a finite number or finite finite limit of success in the world. Like so, just because someone else is doing well in sales or making a lot of money or getting a lot of podcast downloads, like that doesn't mean that you can't. Um, in fact, it might actually help you because then maybe you can learn from them and um, draft off some of their success and things like that. So it's kind of, you got to take the ego out of play a little bit, um, which is also tough for me to do, but I appreciate the, the wisdom there a little bit. Well, I think that's so important, the abundance perspective, because I, I think it's really easy for us to get caught up into thinking that somebody else is taking something from us. So if they earn more money, then I can't earn it. Or if they uh, have a more prestigious job than I do, then somehow they're pushing me, pushing me back or holding me down. And just remembering that, that there's room for all of us to, to continue to grow and become more successful or to find more happiness. And it's not a competition over who has the most. It's all about finding your own way and then thinking, well, what can I learn from this too? If, if you feel like, okay, I'm not um, doing as well as, as I'd hoped to be, well, what might, 
what lessons might I be able to learn when I come in second or how can I take this opportunity and turn it into something positive? Yeah. And I think something that you touch on a lot too, which is really important is the self-awareness aspect and knowing that of those 13 things you list out, yeah, I might be pretty good at four of them. I might be average at six of them, and there's three that just are killing me. And like to actually maybe take a step back and evaluate and maybe like write some of this down or take some time to reflect and see, all right, these are a few that I can really improve on. Um, that's the only way it's going to get better is when you're aware of what the strengths are and what the weaknesses are and your good and bad habits. Yeah. I tell people you're only as good as your worst habits. If you can identify the one or two things that are really keeping you stuck, work on that. Because I think we get so bombarded with all the things we should be doing in life and all the changes you should be making. But um, it's really just one or two bad habits that keeps you stuck. And sometimes just eliminating those can make all of your good habits much more effective. But of course, it's hard to admit our weaknesses. It's difficult. It's painful. It's embarrassing sometimes to acknowledge it. It's easier to just blame other people or to ignore it or pretend that uh, it's not your fault. But if you really want to get better, you have to come to terms with that. Like, yeah, I struggle with this. And uh, and then you come up with a plan for how do I stop doing that? Or how do I eliminate that from my life? Um, but I hear from some people who say, you know, I, I'm mentally strong enough or I don't I don't need to, to work on my mental strength. But that's kind of silly when you think about it, because it's like physical strength. Nobody says I don't need to go to the gym because I have big enough muscles. Obviously, if you don't work out your muscles, then after a while they get weak. Same can be said for mental strength. It's a we're all a work in progress and we all have room for improvement somewhere. Do you think that like generally across the board that us as humans or Americans or, or however you classify everyone that's listening here, like as generally kind of soft, because I kind of think looking back to the way that, you, I don't know, my grandfather or my great, 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 great grandfather was raised or grandmother that they had to go through so much of a harder time. And I had such a, I personally, I, I think I had a great childhood. I, I had a lot of love and, um, you know, just living as an American um, that makes, you know, more than whatever it is, $7 a day, I'm, I'm in the 1% of the world, fortunately. And I want to test myself and make it so I'm more mentally tough for when a tough situation arises. But I feel like we're, we're in a situation where it's tough to do that because a lot of us are maybe coddled when we grew up or we're in just such a fortunate position now. Um, so I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on where you think we sit now just in terms of the greater scale of mental strength and maybe small ways that we can build that up when things are going well so that when the tragedy strikes, we're ready. Yeah, I do think that we're kind of wimpy these days. And I think part of that is, you know, we have more time, we have more opportunity, we have more money than than past generations have had. And which is a wonderful thing. I think that's awesome that we have all of these things going for us. But on the other hand, we didn't have to deal with some of the same hardships that other people have had to deal with or that even people in other parts of the world deal with today. And I think it's easy to take that for granted, that there's plenty of food in the refrigerator and uh, our bank accounts are fine and that we don't have to go down to the river to wash our clothes anymore. And because of that, I think it just it takes extra effort to say, how am I going to work on myself? Because bad things do happen. I know that my story isn't particularly unique. We're all going to go through losses and there's going to be highs and lows. 
And something that concerns me is uh, I wrote an article about it recently, but the younger generation is that um, all of their electronics, and I think technology is a wonderful thing, but on the other hand, I think it's given kids an even bigger escape. I didn't grow up with handheld devices, so I had to learn how do you deal with being bored. I didn't. Ha- I had to sit in the back seat of the car and stare out the window. I didn't have an electronic game to entertain me the whole time. Or how do you uh, how do you deal with being lonely? I sit in my bedroom and have to come up with something to do or a way to cope. But today's kids don't have to do that. They can text message. They can use social media. They're on the internet. And I find like it's a huge distraction. And so even since I started my therapy practice um, in 2001, 2002, compared to uh, today, there's a huge increase in anxiety, especially in young people. And I think part of the reason is because they don't know how to cope with their emotions because they've never really had to because they're able to use electronics as a as a way to escape feeling uncomfortable. So I have concerns about that and about what's going to happen when as they grow up. Yeah. And I'm guilty of that sometimes too. Like say you're in line at Starbucks and there's two people ahead of me. I have to wait for four minutes. And what do I do? I go to the phone. I open up Instagram. I open up Twitter. I check email, whatever. And then I catch myself. I'm like, what are you doing? You can't just stand in line and just look at what is happening in the store or God forbid you like talk to the cashier for a minute. Like just try to like it just really frustrates me when I do that. But I think that's just kind of the way that um, we're headed as a society with all the technology just bombarding us. Like, do you do you put limits on yourself uh, mentally or uh, physically of not touching technology for a certain time of day or a certain amount or anything like that? Yeah, I try to, and it's it's difficult for me because I I run online businesses, so I have to be. Uh, connected to an extent in order to to keep my businesses growing and to be using social media to put the word out there about my latest projects and that sort of a thing. But it's easy to to get into the trap of thinking I need to be uh, connected 24-7. So I certainly do. I take weekends sometimes where I say I'm just not going to use it all weekend. And when I do that, I realize just sort of how wonderful it is to, to be outside doing things and not worrying about the latest email or not thinking I have to post something on social media. It's really quite freeing. And so the more that I do that, the more I realize, you know, an email can wait. I don't have to respond in five minutes. It can wait. Um, There's nothing so urgent that uh, it can't go 24 hours without responding. And it's just a really good reminder of um, to do that so that I, I can just connect with friends and family and not feel like I have to constantly check my phone. Yeah, those days, sometimes I do like a Saturday where I'll go for a hike or a long run or something, keep the phone at home. And God, it just feels like it just that feels like a drug that it just feels so good not to even worry about. There's no temptation because it's not even on you. And um, I've been doing that's something I've been trying to do a little bit on the day to day, like the first half hour or so when I wake up the last half hour before I go to sleep, just throw it in airplane mode. I don't want like, you know, just the phone to keep me up all night or be the first thing I think about when I wake up. And I found that to be a helpful place where at least for an hour of the 16 or 17, I'm awake every day uh, to not be riddled with technology. And I think that's great to just say, how do I, how do I unplug a little bit? And I do similar things. If I am going to walk my dog, I'll just leave the phone at home and to enjoy nature a little bit while I'm outside. And 
just things like that to remind myself. Or if I'm going to visit a friend, I'll leave the phone in the car sometimes so that it's I don't even have to worry about it. And when it's out of sight, it can be out of mind and I don't have to think about um, the latest, you know, if my phone makes a buzz or a ding, I don't have to check, feel like I'm compelled to check it. It's just easier sometimes to just leave it behind or um, just go do something that um, causes you to forget to check your phone. <laughs> yeah, it just feels so good to, to not have to do that. I, I want to pivot really quickly because I saw recently that I think you just finished writing a new book uh, coming out at the end of this year, early 2019. I'm sure you'll you'll correct me on that, but it's 13 things mentally strong women don't do, which is a bit confusing because you wrote about what people don't do and women are people. But I'm sure, but yeah, I have no experience as a woman, so I'm curious to hear how that how how that differs from the original book, and maybe if you're able to share some of the tidbits from that. Sure. So when it came to writing my next book, figuring out what to write about, uh, it's often been based on what my readers are asking for. And so when my first book came out, the biggest question I kept getting was, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? And I just kept getting that question over and over. So that led to my second book, which is the parenting book, The 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And that one is really about how do you teach, how do you raise kids who are going to be mentally strong? And then from the parenting book, I started getting a lot of questions, especially from moms, but just women in general about what do we do? How do you be a mentally strong woman in today's world? And there's things that women do a little bit differently or things that women encounter that that men haven't experienced. And so I approached my publisher and we had some conversations about it. Like, what do you think? And it was before the whole Me Too movement started that we uh, decided to do this book. And then, of course, last fall, the whole Me Too movement started and um, turned it into an even bigger conversation. And so I was excited to, to be able to hopefully have this book come out in a timely manner. But um, because I think the world is changing and it hasn't quite caught up to um, to where we are today as women. You know, it was only... Uh, one of the stories in my next book is about, say, um, the a marathon runner. It was in the 1970s that the first woman ran a marathon because back then nobody thought that women could run 26 miles. That wasn't that long ago. And you think of, well, now where are we in, in today's world? Well, we say that women can do everything that men can in so many ways in business and that women are just as good when it comes to uh, earning money or being entrepreneurs. But of course, we know that women tend to not make as much money. They tend to not be um, promoted as fast, that women in leadership positions are grossly underrepresented or that in government, there's not as many women. And so I just wanted to write a book that said, okay, everyone's telling us you can you can do and be anything you want, but at the same time, we're not there yet. So what do you do? How do you deal with with that space between where, where we are, where we would like to be, and sort of all of the things that are unfolding in the world right now. And so I address issues ranging from, from confidence to uh, how, do you, how do you deal with things like discrimination and harassment, um, all the way down to, you know, how do you talk to, to your kids? Um, we treat little girls and little boys differently, and study after study will show that. So how can we raise girls to be strong, too, and to teach them that, um, that not just saying you can do anything a boy can, but how do you actually instill that in them so that they know that they can grow up? And if you have a daughter who wants to be a CEO or a president, that she can do that too, but really give her that message. Because I think we're 
in that gap of where uh, a lot of us were raised that we were told that, but at the same time, women aren't likely to actually be in those positions. So I'm hoping that um, we can get there by just making a few changes and not just doing the lip service, but actually changing the way that we behave too. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's definitely timely and it's it's an important topic. And I'd be curious, I mean, if you can't say it, that's that's fine. I know that, you know, you're, you have certain probably rules with, with the book publishing, but are you able to share one thing that mentally strong women don't do? Um, sure. One of the things is um, that they don't compare themselves to other people. And study after study will show that, uh, especially when it comes to appearances, women tend to compare themselves more than men. When women are looking at Instagram photos, for example, um, we tend to think, gosh, I wish, I wish I could be like that person, but I can't. I'll never be as good as that person. Whereas studies will show that when men look at somebody, maybe a really muscular physique, men tend to think, uh, wow, I could be like that person someday. Whereas women tend to think, I'll never be like that. And so just a few different things like that about how do you deal with comparisons? How do you change how you think? How can you empower yourself rather than put yourself down? I wonder why that is. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it has to do, you know, the more that as I was writing this book, the the more I learned about uh, sort of the slight differences in the way that um, teachers treat kids, boys versus girls, and just slight differences in the way that dads treat kids, toddlers, for example, and um, the messages that kids get when we uh, do studies on them when they're, say, four years old versus when they're seven, year, seven years old, how their opinions change. And even for me, it was so eye-opening to the more I uh, studied this stuff and the, the deeper I dove into it, the more I was just so surprised. I knew it was a problem, but even I didn't know it was to this extent of just the subtle messages that we give to kids and the things that we were raised um, learning and doing and how it's affected us, I think, really down to our core. And fortunately, I think there are steps we can take to change a lot of that. And um, I'm hoping this book will help. What percentage do you think mental strength is between how it's built between what you're born with versus your upbringing versus the decisions that you make maybe, you know, once you're 18 and over and you're, you're an adult? I, you know, it's definitely a combination. So I would say genetics plays a role. Some people are born with um, just a better biology. You're able to better cope with things. And we know that, you know, personality and things like that, um, or whether you're predisposed to mental health conditions, all of that matters for sure. I would say 20%. When it comes to uh, your childhood, absolutely. It affects your core beliefs and sort of how you see yourself and how you see the world and how you interact with other people. So I would say that's a, a 30 or 40%. But the rest of it, I think, and you can't undo those things, but you can certainly uh, go on and say, okay, now how do I make changes in my life? How do I deal with the hand that I was dealt to be the best that I can? And I think the rest of it is all about the choices that you choose to make. If you are you had a rough childhood and maybe your parents weren't the best at the age of 30, you can say, I'm still, I'm never going to be as good as everybody else. Or you can say, this is the hand I was dealt now. What can I do despite whatever I went through? And so I absolutely think everybody has the opportunity to become mentally strong. Um, no matter what you've been through. And one of the things I uh, did for a very long time is I was a foster parent. 
And I would have foster kids between the ages of four and 17 was my oldest. But to see these kids who had been through such traumatic circumstances and abuse and been taken away from their families and all of that sort of a thing, and yet the potential that they had to still go on and be such productive people and they had hopes and dreams. And for me, that was so inspiring to just say, okay, now, despite what you've been through, you can, you still have so many choices in life. And I think uh, for a lot of those kids, they were still hopeful and optimistic. And um, I think that just knowing, just having somebody in your life who reminds you, okay, no matter what you've been through or uh, no matter what you were born with in terms of genetics, you have choices and options. And I think that's really about the difference between feeling like you're a victim and knowing that uh, you're a survivor and you can get out there and, and uh, be the best that you want, despite whatever hand you were dealt in life. Yeah, I think it's so interesting, the kind of the, the paradox between a lot of the successful people that I look up to or that I admire throughout, whether they're alive now or in history, had such difficult upbringings a lot of the time or went through such crazy challenges early or in the middle of their life and then turned out that kind of shaped their character. And then when I think about um, you know, some of the people that I don't really like, sometimes they're the, they're the kids of those people or those types of people because their parents were so successful or wealthy and sometimes you know they they have that sense of entitlement or they let that get to their heads when they they didn't necessarily accomplish anything they were just born into you know a, a very well off family so i feel like it's so interesting that sometimes you have to go through those you have to go through those tough times and you don't want to make your kids suffer but you want them to be tough at the same time i just i don't have kids but i just find that to be very interesting and something that when i am a dad that is going to be difficult to kind of maneuver yeah, it's a it's a topic that I address quite a bit in my parenting book is how do we do that? We know that uh, 60% of college kids say I was academically prepared for college, but not emotionally. I don't have the emotional skills to deal with uh, being lonely, being uh, depressed, being sad, uh, dealing with stress. And uh, we live in a world where everybody's a helicopter parent for the most part. And so it's hard to let your child fail. If you think, okay, I'm not going to do my kid's homework for him, or I'm, I'm not going to make sure that he gets his homework done. He might be the only one in the class who doesn't do it. And then you might feel like, well, I'm letting my kid be at a disadvantage. But you have to let kids make mistakes. You have to let them fail sometimes so that they can learn and so that they know that failure isn't terrible. I see so many teenagers who who don't know what to do once they fail, if they don't make the baseball team or if they uh, get an F on their first test in college. It's sheer panic because they think, you know, I've never had to deal with anything like this before. And as a college professor, I see the same things. Kids come to me and they say, you know, I forgot to do my homework last night. Uh, what am I going to do? And they're in just sheer panic. And it's all about knowing, okay, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail and that's okay. Um, but, you know, asking your professor to give you an A if you didn't deserve it probably isn't going to be helpful to you in life and that not everybody's going to um, to appease you. And so I think it's so important to, to start teaching kids from a young age that, yep, tough, tough things happen, that we all go through hardships, but that you can handle it rather than us always rescuing them or preventing them from facing those problems. Yeah. And, and maybe focusing more on putting in the effort. It's not about whether, at least at a young, I mean, really ever, but really at a young age, like it's not whether you win or lose the game or, Maybe that you have an A, it's about the effort. Like how long were you studying for? Like did you 
Did you try as hard as you could on the basketball court, whatever it may be? Um, and then, you know, uh, celebrating, trying new things and failing versus, again, like being an, being the best flute player when you're eight. Well, it's like, hey, you tried out for the, the school play or for the choir and like maybe you, you didn't make it or maybe you did. Maybe your voice is terrible, but at least you're trying and, you know, you're you're pushing yourself and trying new things. Absolutely. I, I see so many teenagers who, who won't try something new because they're not guaranteed that they're going to be good at it. So they won't try playing the trumpet because maybe I'll fail and I can't handle failure. I don't want to try a new sport because there's no guarantee that I'll be on the all-star team. And I think that's so sad. I think we just need to teach kids that and all of us, even as adults, it's okay to fail. It's okay to try new things and to go out there and experiment and, and do new things and you can handle failure. And um, on the other hand, I see kids too, if they've always been praised for say being really smart, then they think that their parents care about their grades above and beyond anything else. So they'll cheat, they'll do whatever they can to get ahead. And then they, uh, you know, their parents are proud of them. Great job getting an A. You did so well. You got a hundred, you got the highest grade in the class and all of those sorts of things just reinforce to them. doesn't matter if I tried hard. It doesn't matter if I was honest. It doesn't matter if I studied a lot. What matters is how I do in the end. In fact, they did this study where they asked kids, would you, would your parents rather that the teacher say you were the nicest kid or the smartest kid in the mm -hmm. class? And almost all the kids said, my parents only want me to be the smart kid. And then they asked the parents, would you rather that your teacher say the kid's the nicest or the smartest kid? The vast majority of parents say, I'd like my kid to be the nicest kid in class. But they'd never given their kid that message. All they ever talked about was grades. So... I think it's so important for parents to know what do you actually value in life and are you teaching your kids those values? It's easy to get caught up in thinking life is all about getting the best grades and getting into the best college and it's all about being the best on the sports team. But uh, when we do that with kids, you know, then they just aren't learning all the skills that they need to be a responsible, healthy adult. Interesting. Yeah, that's I never thought about that before. Um, I have a random question because I actually don't think I've ever talked to a therapist before what is let's say someone goes into your office and they don't nothing specifically traumatic has happened but you're just like hey, i've just been feeling down in the dumps and i don't have the energy i used to and i don't have the passion and i'm just not feeling good like what what are the first few questions that you would ask that person to maybe uncover what the problem is or, or what the the true story is of of what's going on with them uh, so, you know, I would probably just want to know how long has this been going on? Tell me more about your symptoms when you're feeling down, what happens? Um, we find a lot of people, for example, and they say, when I'm feeling down, so what do you do when you go home from work? What do you do in your spare time? They'll say, well, I sit, I sit in front of the TV because I don't feel like going out with my friends or I don't feel like going to the gym anymore, so I don't do it. And when people are down, they tend to do things that keep them in that state and so instead of saying, okay, I don't feel like going out and doing anything, um, I'm just going to sit here. Well, nobody ever feels better just by sitting on the couch and binge watching Netflix for four days, right? And so it's really just about unearthing, you know, what what's going on? How long have your symptoms been? What do you do? Are there certain things in your life reinforcing those symptoms? And some people will just come to therapy saying, you know, I feel a little different than I usually do. I don't have as much energy as I used to. Uh, it might be a medical thing. If they haven't seen their doctor in a while, I'll send them to their doctor just to get a, a checkup to make sure it's not a thyroid issue or something like that. 
Um, and other times it's just a matter of a handful of sessions to do some problem solving, to say, what can we do? Uh, what kinds of things did you used to like to do? What if you did those anyway, even though you don't feel like doing them right now, it might be changing your behavior pulls you out of this. Do you want to change how you feel? There's two things that you can look at changing the way that you think or the way that you behave. Sometimes we work on both of them at the same time. But I think for a lot of people, there's so many misconceptions about therapy out there. People think I have to have a serious mental illness before I see a therapist or um, only crazy people go to therapy. But there's actually plenty of successful, high achieving people out there who struggle with anxiety. They're struggling with depression and maybe nobody knows and you wouldn't know by looking at them. But, um, you know, I think once it becomes a, a problem for you, then it's important to go see somebody if your symptoms last more than two weeks or if you're struggling with something and it's starting to affect your relationships or it's affecting your work, then it's so important to go see somebody and you don't necessarily need to have a therapist for 30 years. And it's not like you see on TV of laying on the couch and talking about your childhood and bringing up all, all of the traumas or any times your feelings have been hurt. Sometimes it's just about going in and saying, you know, I'm struggling with worrying about everybody else, or I'm a people pleaser. What can I do about that? And it might just be a few sessions of talking to somebody can help you move forward. It is definitely a misconception and, you know, anxiety is a real thing. I, I saw you were talking to James Altucher about that. He He's a former guest of this show. I love his podcast and I was listening to you guys rap about that. But Michael Gervais, I don't know if you know who he is. Um, I do. Okay. And he says on his podcast that 30%, at least 30% of people have anxiety. And I think it's higher. I mean, I know I'm anxious sometimes about like, I kind of think it has, it relates to, one to be a high achiever and I wake up at, you know, whatever, four 30 in the morning, I'm ready to do a thousand things. I'm ready to get every task done imaginable. And it's like, all right, sometimes you need to like relax a little bit, take some deep breaths. So I think um, maybe my last question for you here, cause I know we're, we're getting short on time would be to the 27 year old. That's, you know, living in Kansas right now, that's listening that has, you know, they're a high, they have a growth mindset and, they're working hard and they want to make a little more money and um, or lose that extra weight or whatever it is um, and is a high achiever, but feels a little anxious about that goal. Is there something that you would advise them to maybe give them more peace of mind? Maybe that's a loaded question. Well, you know, I think... We- Having anxiety is is helpful in many circumstances. If you didn't have any anxiety, you wouldn't look both ways before you cross the road. So anxiety is meant to keep you safe. In our world today, we really don't face that many physical dangers anymore. There's not a lion chasing you um, when you step outside. And so a lot of the uh, things that make us anxious are more like social situations or worrying about money, um, things that won't necessarily kill you, but that still set off your body's alarm bells just as if you were in some sort of physical danger. And so I think it's important to an extent to accept anxiety, to know that anxiety doesn't have to hold you back. It doesn't keep you have to keep you stuck in life. But on the other hand, to know that you want to have enough anxiety that it's good for you, but to recognize when it's becoming too much, when it starts to interfere with sleep, when it starts to interfere with your relationships, that's when it's a problem. And to know how to put the brakes on when you notice that. And it might just be a matter of um, incorporating more uh, healthy strategies in your life. It could be I'm going to shut my phone off more. It could be I'm going to meditate more often. Um, Or it might just be saying, okay, I'm going to really take a look at my values. If money is a big one for so many people, money is the number one stressor in America. 
And if we said, all right, well, how important is money to me? And do I need to work 100 hours a week? Am I just trying to pay off my bills? Am I just competing with my friends because I want a nicer car? But really get in touch with what are your values and how do you prioritize certain things in your life? Um, Anxiety sometimes is a sign that things have gotten a little bit out of whack. You're working too much. You're spending too much time um, focused on one thing in life and not um, spreading it out and having a full and rich life. So I think it's really about... um, sometimes just taking a step back and evaluating where am I, what am I doing? And to know that, um, again, anxiety doesn't have to be bad. I see so many people who are worried about their anxiety or they're fighting it or they're thinking, if only I didn't have anxiety, then I could do better. But to know that just accepting it sometimes and saying, how do I channel this into something positive and um, you can make it work better for you. Yeah. It's uh, it's the same piece around self-awareness, which is huge. And um I don't know if you've read the book, The Obstacles the Way, but I feel like yes. you I feel like you you're like a you should be a case study in that book, just the way that you're the way you talk about things and in your journey a little bit. And that's one of my favorite books ever. Yes, I am a fan of Ryan Holiday as well. Yeah, love it. So uh Amy, I, I am very grateful that you're on the show. I appreciate all the wisdom that you've shared and um, really just, you know, again, your story is incredible and, and, you know, I applaud everything that you're doing. I'd love for you to maybe share for a minute here. Where can everyone find you on social media? Where can we find uh, the past two books you've written? You got the uh, 13 things mentally strong women don't do coming up soon um, and where we can find all of that. Uh, my website's the best place and it's Amy Morin. LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. But the good news is after having 50 million people read an article, if you just Google Amy Morin, you'll find me. Awesome. Um, I actually, I will admit I had to Google what LCSW meant when I saw that on your, on your site, but <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I started that website before I became an author and, um, <laughs> and it's just stuck, but yes, licensed clinical social worker. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for uh, spending the time sharing your wisdom. Everyone go check it out. Go check out her site um, and pick up her two books that are out now and, and the new one coming later this year. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. Really hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, if you found any value, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please head on over uh, and give it a five-star rating subscribe, review, whether it's on the iTunes app, whether it's on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, if it's there. Um, Really appreciate you. You can find me at tomalamo.com, T-O-M-A-L-A-I-M-O.com for the blog, all the show notes, and Tommy Tahoe uh, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Find me on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So thanks so much. Grateful for you. Have a great week.